Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Deep Dive. Deep down inside, we all know we need to get close to God. How do we do it? Can you believe that a book from 3,500 years ago has a lot to say about it? Welcome in Wednesday night Bible study time, the deep dive Torah part nine. And I hope that you are enjoying this content. I hope it is a blessing to you. And uh, if it is, can you hit the like and the subscribe and the notification bell on your YouTube device right now? You get notified every time we go live. My name is Tim. Welcome to Tim Hatch Live. And we are studying. Uh, passages in the first five books of the Bible. Now, one of the one of the things that's going to mark this deep dive Bible study differently than other ones is that we're not going to go chronologically or verse by verse through the text. Although we will be doing that in in certain heaps of the study, we're going to be jumping around like we have already. We we went to the first Ten Commandments, and uh, we also then just jumped way over to the other end of the spectrum last week with Deuteronomy 21, the female captive law. And today we're discussing going all the way back to the end of the first 10 commandments in Exodus chapter 20. And what does God say about worship? So with that in mind, I want to give us just a picture, like a wide angle view of what we've looked at so far. And, and that is this here up on the screen, the spectrum of Torah's instructions. So there are, there is a spectrum. There's a spectrum of laws in Torah, right? On the far left over here. Don't you like how I can just bounce around and just point up like this? Isn't this cool? Is this is the um, sensible eternal principles of Torah, the Ten Commandments, the love your neighbor laws, the love the stranger laws, justice, faithfulness, purity. These are laws that are not negotiable. Ooh, let me move up here. These are laws that are timeless. They are sensible. They resonate for all time, for all people. But if we bounce over here to the right, now we've got the historically conditioned guidance that God gives to his ancient people, Israel, that we're going to enact holy war to take the land of Canaan, that we're going to have to deal with things like accidental death, such as if your axe head slips off and it hits your neighbor somehow, how are we supposed to recompense your neighbor who is responsible and how responsible are they? And those laws we may get to in our study. And then we're going to get into this in the next couple of weeks. Slaves. Why? Why is the Torah so visually, at least on the surface, pro-slave? Like this is one of the big complaints that we talked about last week when it comes to the atheist argument against the Bible is the Bible is pro-slavery. Look at how it tells Israel to treat people. How is that possibly God's word, right? So that's one of the criticisms, one of the drawbacks of studying the Bible on your own, because you will read these passages and you will say, yikes, this is definitely not with the times, 
But there's laws. There's certain ways that God speaks through those laws in ancient times that actually have a great deal to say to us today as his people in our context, even though they are about the very difficult conversation of slavery. So that's the spectrum. Now, we have covered the two ends of the spectrum. We covered for three weeks the first 10 principles, the first 10 commandments. And then last week, we talked about that crazy law about taking a woman captive in holy war. And we looked at it through those three lenses, the historical context, biblical context, and the gospel context. And we're going to do those difficult sayings more and more going forward. But this week, we are bouncing all the way back, yes, to this passage. Not that passage. Uh, Let me go to the passage that we are going to go to, and that is... In Exodus chapter 20. So we are in Exodus chapter 20, verse 18. And we are back to the Ten Commandments. He has just finished in verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, male servant, female servant. Well, look at what happens right after this. It says the people saw the thunder, verse 18, the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet, the mountain smoking. The people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off, and they said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. So there is a response to God's voice here in Torah from the people of Israel, and it is a telling response. It is the response of the human heart. It is the response of every person that you've ever invited to church or try to tell about God and they say, uh, not for me. Uh, no, I can't. Or I couldn't ever go to church. This is the human condition. And really, you may have never thought about it in this lens or in this quadrant of theology. It is a worship question because worship is about approaching God. Worship is about communicating to him. Worship is about loving God. And you don't love God without knowing God and approaching God and being close to God. And ultimately, what you have to understand is that Torah has a lot to say about how God's people should approach him. And it has a lot to say to us here in the modern world about how we should approach our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and God God the Father through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the community and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So tonight is about that. The worship of the Lord our God, understanding worship through Torah. And I am excited to get into this content. I hope you are too. Let us not forget that Jesus said the the whole law is summed up in two commandments. Go to Matthew chapter 22, 37. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now look at verse 40 of Matthew 22. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So there it is. There it is from Jesus's own mouth that if we can get these two ideas solidified in our minds, we've got the law down tonight. We're dealing with the first one. How do we worship God properly? And what does Torah have to say about that? Because it is not a coincidence in any respect at all that right after God gives the Ten Commandments, the people of Israel are overwhelmed by the presence of God. And then there's a commandment about approaching God. So that's what tonight is about. That's where we're going. How do we worship God? Now, to set the case, to build the case for why you should pay attention to me for the next uh, 30 to 40 
Or who are we kidding? 30 to 50 minutes. <laughs> Why should you listen to me about this? Because we've got a problem in the church. And the serious problem that I want to address is horrible worship music. And, and even the idea, too. And let me just mark that as well. I'm going to make a little X out of the word music. Because there's a problem in the church. Horrible worship. And yes, some horrible worship music. We don't know how to worship God. We, all, we, we think we do by nature, but we don't. And we honestly have so many holes in worship in modern churches. There is a great divide uh, in the church when it comes to worship. You can go right down the Catholic Protestant divide. What is the Eucharist? What is the Lord's Supper? How are we to relate to God through the sacraments or through the ordinances, right? That's the divide. And then you can go through the um, Protestant denominations and it is divided by styles of music. Where is the pulpit on the stage? Have you been to a church where the pulpit is off to the left? And you're like, I don't know what that's all about. Or do you go to a church where the pulpit is in the center? Or maybe there is no pulpit. There's a a podium with a flat surface and maybe there's no podium and it looks more like a Ted talk. And then, and then what do they use in their worship experience? Do they worship in a circle? Do they worship in an auditorium? Do they worship in a cathedral with a, you know, pitched roof? Do they worship with modern instruments? Do they worship acapella? This is really interesting stuff because it is in many ways, the dividing line of so many Christian fellowships, so many, so much of what should be Christian community and Unity, we divide over this, particularly though with worship. So even though I did cross out worship, I'm going to uncross it out because the the problem in the modern church, and I am specifically talking about my quadrant of the Christian movement globally, is which I call the cool church movement. If you're if you're new to the channel, the, the cool church movement is the pastor wears ripped jeans, a cool shirt, probably a necklace, has a cool haircut and a nice beard. <laughs> and then they have U2 or more modernly Coldplay style music that everybody sings to. It's lo it looks like a concert. That's my quadrant. That's where I'm coming from. Just full disclosure. Okay. I am not coming from the organ music style. I'm not coming from the, um, you know, the, the high church style, which is you, know, you might have a pipe organ in the front with this impressive, you know, uh, structure in the front with all these pipes and and looks like a bunch of whistles lined up along the back wall. I've been to those churches. I understand their their um, their worship style. But what I am talking about is horrible worship and particularly music in the cool church movement. I want to give you a couple of examples to show you how often we can just drift from true worship, because if if we're supposed to love God, we, we have to love God. In truth, what does Jesus say? That the Father is looking for worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And so much of modern evangelicalism is devoid of both. Spirit, as in we only care about one spirit, and as how is my spirit responding to this moment? And then truth, we only care about the truth that we like. So what do I feel is happening in my spirit, my emotional state, based on the words that I'm expressing to God, which may or may not be prescriptive truth from God's word. This is a serious problem in the church. It is why we have such an anemic church when it comes to theology. Uh, theology must wrap up 
our worship experience. We re- worship is response, right? So worship must respond to God as he is and as he has called us to respond to him and for what he has done in the truth that is in Jesus Christ. In other words, worship music is not about how your day's going and it's not about how you're feeling and it's not about who loves you and who hates you on this planet. Worship is about God. The old English word is the root or the source of our word in English worship, worthship. How do we ascribe worth to God? And so it's no, that is for those reasons that there's a lot of content in Torah regarding how Israel was to worship Yahweh. So, Back to my point, though. Let me give you some horrible worship music examples. And I'm sorry, but you might get offended by these examples. You might sing these songs in your church. I don't care. You need truth. Here's example number one. This is a song I think is called, I think it's called Let It Be or Let It Start or Let It Continue. I don't know what it's called. It comes from the movement. It comes from the band Upper Room. It was published in 2021. And uh, it's, oh, no, no, sorry. This is not that. This is Give Me Jesus. Sorry. The name of this song is Give Me Jesus. Now, listen to the lyrics of this song. If you're listening, uh, I'll, I'll read them to you. But if, you, if you're watching on video, you already see them. I don't want anything but you. You're more than every dream come true. All the things I thought I wanted don't come close to knowing you. Now that I'm yours and you are mine, our love is the secret that I find. I'll spend forever in the pleasure I found in looking in your eyes. Okay. Problem. <laughs> do, do you already want vomit to come up into your mouth? Because I do. When I, when I read these lyrics, I say to myself, where is Christ? Where is the blood? Where is the sacrifice for our sins? Where is, our, where is holiness? Where is honor? Where is reverence for a God who is holy other than me, who is beyond me? And yes, He desires intimacy and he dwells with the lowly and the meek in heart and absolutely. And Jesus walked among us and dwelt among us and loved us and loved us fully. But love is not an ethereal, emotional thing with God. It is a demonstrative thing. It is a demonstrative action with God. Love is not something that God just says, man, you guys really, you know, get my heart beating fast. No, love is expressed as Romans chapter five says, it says in chapter five, verse eight, God shows his love or the word could also be translated, demonstrates his love for us. And it's that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. There is God's love. God's love is demonstrated, not emotionally experienced. Even if you go to John chapter three and you go to verse 16, the most famous verse in the Bible. First, let me take my note, those little um, icons off. Okay. John chapter three, verse 16, for God so loved the world. And the word so is not, it is not a um, quantitative term. It is a qualitative term. It is not, it is not saying God so much loved us. It is saying this is how God, God so loved the world. This, this is the way God loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He gave the, he gave his son to die for our sins. There is a demonstrative nature to the love of God. So back to bad worship music. The problem that I have with this song and you probably can identify with this as well, is that if Taylor Swift can sing this without telling her audience that this is a worship song written by a Christian band and nobody's the wiser 
and everybody just starts raising their hands as they do at Taylor Swift's concerts and singing along with her, thinking that she's speaking about a guy, there is a serious problem with the song. Understand? If the song does, let me put it this way. Uh, no, you know, before I get ahead of myself, let me give you another example because I've got a, I've got a story about it. The, the, the second example that I have is Let It Happen by United Pursuit. This is a bit of an older song. I think it's from 2013. So here's the lyrics for those of you listening. You're full of life now and full of passion. That's how he made you. Just let it happen. And he calls each one of us by our names to come away. And he whispers to your heart to let it go and to be alive. Be alive, be alive, be alive, be alive. Come alive, come alive, come alive, come alive. <laughs> <laughs> this is like this is like applause by Lady Gaga. <laughs> anyway, so take me back back to the beginning when I was young running through the fields with you. OK, Taylor Swift could sing the song in her concert and no one would have a clue that it was about the Lord Jesus Christ. No one would have a clue that it was responsive for a blood sacrifice that happened 2000 years ago in human history for your salvation, for your cleansing internally to take away your offensive sins before the eyes of God. And this is the point. So I went to look up this song because I remember from many years ago and I, <laughs> I really hit this song hard years ago in my church and the band never played it again <laughs> because there is this idea that you just keep singing that song, that, that refrain over and over again. So take me back, back to the beginning when I was young, running through the fields with you. Okay. Th this is, this is infantile worship. This is emotional teeny bopper worship. It needs to be cut out of the church. And I know I'm offending somebody. I know I'm offending somebody and hopefully I'm offending a few people who need to come to their senses when it comes to what kind of songs do we sing to the Lord? How do we respond to him? And I know worship is not about singing alone. I understand that. But a huge part of it is reflected in our singing. And I think that our singing is a reflection of how we relate to God ordinarily. Right. So our songs are writings of our response to God and too much of modern Christian experience of God is emotive. It is ethereal. It is ephemeral. It is feminine. It is feelings oriented and it is not grounded in truth. It is not testimonial. You have to look for worship. You have to look for churches that in their worship are testimonial. Here is what God has done for us. Here is what Jesus laid down for us. Here is the glory of God. Here is who he is. Here is who we are in the light of him. Now, there are some very good examples from modern Christian music. I'm just picking two bad ones and I'm sure that United Pursuit and, uh, I forget who the other, who was the other band that I mentioned? Upper Room. I'm sure that they have great examples of good worship music. This is just two bad ones. And I always say to, this, to our worship leaders that we sing maybe about 10 songs that Charles Wesley wrote back in the 1700s in America. We still sing about 10 of his songs. The guy wrote 3,000 songs. Okay, we sing 10 of them, which means that he probably wrote... 2,990 bad songs, okay? 2,990 songs that were either too emotional or not doctrinally sound, and the church just was like, no, that's not, that's not living past this generation. And so uh, we have to look at our worship, and we have to say, okay, how is God asking us to respond to him? Which brings us to the text. Let's go, let's go to it. On the heels of the Ten Commandments, I read part of it. 
uh, Exodus 20, verse 18. It says, the people saw the thunder, flashes of lightning. They were afraid. They stood far off. They said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Okay, so the people respond and their response is fear. And this is not uh, to be ignored. They respond in the way that humans are going to naturally respond to God. By the way, you know you've met with God when fear is involved in the example, in the experience. Let me give you a couple of examples from the Bible. Isaiah chapter six, verse five. This is a very holy, righteous prophet. And when Isaiah meets God in the temple, he says, woe is me. By the way, interesting little side note about this text. In Isaiah chapter 5, you can go and read it for yourself. In Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah lists uh, six woes for the nation, for other people. He says, woe to you who call good evil and evil good. Woe to you who build house upon house. Woe to you who, you know, uh, take advantage of the poor. Okay, and then he gets to chapter 6. He sees the Lord in the temple, and then he says, woe is me. Kind of interesting. You've met with God when you're no longer pointing the finger at other people. You're pointing the finger at yourself. Job chapter 42, verse 5. After 30 some odd chapters of Job complaining and, and, and proclaiming his innocence, when he sees God show up, what does he say? I heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. You know you've met with God when you are humbled, when you are um, obliterated in your pride and arrogance. Judges chapter 13, Samson's uh, parents, Manoah and his wife, when they saw the Lord, they said, surely we shall die for we've seen God. Luke chapter five, verse eight, New Testament now, Peter sees the tremendous catch of fish when Jesus asks to borrow his boat and then told him to cast the nets over this other side of the uh, boat after a night of fruitless fishing. And when, G when Peter sees the catch of fish, he falls down at Jesus' feet and says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Revelation chapter one. Now this is a, a John the Revelator, who is filled with the Holy Spirit, who has preached the gospel for probably close to 70 years of his life. He's he's on a prison colony alone. The Lord shows up in Revelation chapter one. And and it says this, when he saw him in verse 17, he fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his hand on me and said, fear not. You know, you've met with God when there is an awe, when there's a, a, a fear, a holy reverence and honor for him. It is not a Taylor Swift experience. It is not a Taylor Swift love song is what I'm trying to tell you. It is not this flippant emotional reaction. No, it is a call to holy response to a worthy God. So what does Moses say to the people? He says, look, fear not. Just the way that God responds to John in, in Revelation 1, so Moses responds to the people here in Exodus chapter 20. In the face of their fear of God, the, the, the uh, representative of God says, no, don't fear. God is testing you. The word could be translated, prove you, to, that, that the fear of him may be before you. Worship starts with fear of God because fear of God keeps us from sin. And that's exactly what Moses says here, that you may not sin. And the people stood far off. The looming issue of man, like I said, this is, a, this is a human issue, right? Because if you go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, what is the first emotion that mankind experiences? The first emotion they experience is fear. Genesis 3, 8, after eating the fruit and handing it to her husband and he ate, God shows up. Genesis 3, 8, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Uh, 
among the trees of the garden. And then verse 10, when God asks what's going on, he says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So summing this kind of building the case up for what, what God is going to prescribe for worship to the Israelites in Torah, you have the eternal problem. And the eternal problem is simply this. God wants to be with us. There's no doubt about that. Uh, just going back to the text that I just referenced, uh, between the sin of the fall of man and the exile from the garden is God searching out man. We like to say modern church Christian leader, modern church pastors say, oh, people are seekers. They're not seekers. God is the seeker. God is the one who seeks and saves. Jesus said the son of man came to seek and save. God is the first seeker in the garden of Eden. He is the one who came and found Adam hiding. Uh, God is the one who comes and finds us. Jesus says to his disciples, you did not find me or you did not choose me. I've chose you. God wants to be with you. But the problem is God is holy and we are not. And that is an eternal problem for all of us. And this is going to spell out our eternity. Our eternity is defined by our response to God. He is holy. We, 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 we know that. And our response is either we run from him or we receive what he has done for us. Uh, this is the response of the people, how they fear God. And what they say is so important because it's not highlighted. It's the wrong passage that I've highlighted in this, in this slide. But it says here that they said to Moses, you speak for us. And we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Do you know what they want? They want a, medi they want a mediator. They want someone to stand bef between God and themselves. It is exactly what Job asks for in Job 6. Would that there be a mediator. One translation says an umpire that would lay his hand on him and myself and would you know, bring us together. And that is what the people are asking for. God is holy. He wants to be with us. We need a mediator. The good news is, are you ready for this? We have a mediator. The mediator is Christ Jesus. It says in 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 6, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. Now, the idea of mediator here is important because what you have to understand is that without Christ, we die in the presence of God. A great theologian once said it like this. <clears throat> Heaven is living in the presence of God with a mediator and hell is living in the presence of God without one. That's a beautiful and very rich theological statement, but it is true. Hell is not run by Satan. Hell is run by Jesus. Jesus is the one who has the keys of hell and death. Jesus is the one who will cast Satan and the dragon and the false prophet into the lake of fire. And Jesus is the one who will destroy with the breath of his mouth. All those who disbelieve and cast them also into the lake of fire. Jesus is the one who is punching the tickets of people that have rejected the father, rejected his sacrifice and living on their own terms, have wandered away from him and walked in their own stubborn rebellion. And he is the one who will send them to hell. Please understand that theologically. And so to be in heaven is to be at peace with God because we have a mediator who has stepped between us. The umpire that Job longs for is Jesus Christ. But to be in hell is to not have that mediator and to be standing before the presence of a holy righteous God in our sin that shames us and destroys us and nullifies all the pride and arrogance in us. There is no pride in hell. There is no joy in hell. There is no happiness. There is no bar. There's no happy hour. Your friends will not see you in hell. It is a dark place, weeping and gnashing of teeth. They do not want God. They have run from God and they are weeping and gnashing of teeth because they are weeping because they are without a savior. They are without a mediator, someone to bring peace between themselves and God. 
So this is what this text is ultimately pointing to. How do we understand worship through Torah? What does God say in response to their fear? He gives them a prescription, laws about approaching me. And this is going to be the lion's share of our talk tonight. So verse 22 of Exodus 20, let's take a look at it. It says, and the Lord said to Moses, thus you shall say to the people of Israel, you have seen for yourselves that I've talked to you from heaven. You shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold An altar of earth. You shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. In every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it on uh, of hew stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you profane it. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. Seems pretty clear to me, right? This is exactly why we're doing the study through Torah, so that I can explain difficult passages like this and help you know the Lord better, because this is how he has chosen to reveal himself. And it's an important priority, isn't it? Because on the heels of the Ten Commandments being revealed, the people respond in fear, and God says, let's set some priorities on how you're going to approach me. Kind of important for God to do this right after uh, meeting with the people and seeing their fear. He says, no, 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 we're going to work this out. You are going to relate to me this way. So it is about the approach to God, according to ancient Israel law. First thing he says, you shall not make gods of silver or gold. Uh, number one point that God is making here is there's no imposing your imagination on God. You're, that the worship, the approach to God shall not be limited to your imagination, your understanding. What does Isaiah 55 say? As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are your thoughts higher than mine. Or my thoughts higher than yours, God says. We cannot think about God in our own terms. We cannot limit him to our understanding. I often say this on the channel, a God that you can understand is a God of your own making. And he probably looks a lot like you. God is beyond understanding. He is beyond beyond our greatest grasp, okay? We have no clue even how large our universe is. What percentage of knowledge does mankind really have? With all of his arrogance, pomp, and all of his self-confidence and pride, we know how much of the universe. We, we know a sliver of universal information. That's why science is always changing. Anybody who says the science is fixed is lying to you. That's why we are always investigating. And we are drawn to investigate, right? Because this, the draw into the mystery is part of the human condition. And it is a very good draw, but it is part of our experience with God. We approach him on his terms, understanding that he is, he is the one beyond us. He is not limited to this idea of who we think he is. Uh, Psalm 135 verse 15 says, the idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. This is helping us understand what God is stipulating here. You're not going to come to me on your own understanding. You're going to come to me with mystery, with a humility that you are learning of me. You are growing into the knowledge of me. This is where worship starts, by the way, because worship is responding to knowing him and knowing what he has done and then praising him for it and celebrating him and rejoicing in him. Uh, by the way, there's a parallel passage in Deuteronomy 16 about this. It says, Deuteronomy 16, 21, you shall not plant any tree as an ashram beside the altar of the Lord your God that you shall make, and you shall not set up a pillar which the Lord your God hates. A couple things about this text is that God is saying your worship is not going to be your own individualistic idea. And this is also part of our modern world problem with worship. 
because everybody can kind of isolate themselves. I'm looking for my phone. Here we go. They can isolate themselves with podcasts and worship playlists, and they can say, this is my relationship to God. And God is profoundly uh, repudiates that ideology, even in the Torah, that God's people will set up an altar of stones, plural. They will build altars throughout Torah and Joshua and first and second Samuel, first and second Kings. And these altars are communal. They are made up of 12 stones, typically representing the 12 tribes of Israel, the communal aspect of worship toward God. You are not to individualize your experience with God. There are too many Christians that do this on a regular basis. They live disconnected from a local church under no spiritual authority. And they tell themselves that God is everywhere so I can worship God anywhere. And that is, that is, that is not actually appropriate. It, it might be true in theory. God is everywhere and you can worship him anywhere. But there's also a stipulation in scripture, clear stipulation, that authority comes from God, that authority is spiritual, that you must respect your elders, listen to them, obey them, follow them, honor them, imitate their example. There's a plethora of texts about that. You must have a community of faith that you are attached to God through not just an individualistic mindset uh, as you approach God. So altars of stone, of silver and gold are prohibited in our approach to God because we come to him as he is, not as we think him to be. Let's go on in the text, verse 24. This is an interesting phrase, an altar of earth, an altar of earth you shall make for me and sacrifice on it your burnt offerings, and just notice the repeat of your, your burnt offerings, your peace offerings, your sheep, your oxen. One of the key elements of the sacrificial system that defines Torah as separate from the ancient cult practices of the Near Eastern religions in the ancient world is that God sterilizes or purifies, if you will, the worship practices of the pagan nations. You, you go throughout all uh, human history, basically, and you will find worship and you will find a response to the gods and you will find animal sacrifices and in some places child sacrifices because there is this inherent fear that God is angry and we must respond or um, appease the Holy One and bless our lives that way. Well, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, and we will get to that, we will get to them time and time again you see God doing a couple of things with them. Number one, they will not eat the fat. They will burn the fat. Number two, they will eat lean meat. Number three, they will eat it in the presence of the Lord after everybody offering and dealing with the meat has washed themselves and cleansed themselves. You see these purity standards. And then number three, they will eat it. Like they will, they will receive the goodness of the sacrifice. God wants them to enjoy the sacrifices because he is not hungry. <laughs> he is not needful of our sheep and our sacrifices. Even when you get to Isaiah chapter 58, and he's talking about a fast that God approves of, not just self-denial, not just going through the motions of religious, you know, uh, asceticism, but rather to love and to care and to show mercy and to fight for justice. This is what spiritual practices should be about. So back to this idea of the altar of earth, because I got ahead of myself here. Just think about the earth and we're looking at mud and we're looking at rock and we're looking at stone. Simple, simple instruments, instrumentality through which we are to approach God. Fundamentally, number two, God is saying, stay grounded. Stay grounded. Connect yourself 
to the earth in your worship. Now, there is a great rabbi, Rashi. He writes about this. This is not a saved person. This is a Jewish person. But I, I want to reference his comments on this text because I believe that they are important and they are informative for us as Christians. He writes that the altar must be attached to the ground and it should not be built on columns or some other foundation. In other words, the altar, our mode of communication with God, according to the understanding of that time, must be rooted in the earth. God is commanding us to ground ourselves. Now, the point also can be taken, and Rashi goes further and talks about this, that in Israel's worship, as they respond to God, they are not to ignore the reality of the ground on which they stand. How does that respond? How does that react? How does that apply to us? How often in worship do we think that only when we get a certain feeling in church during a certain song that we are worshiping, that we have entered in. And we'll say this. We'll say this about songs in church. Oh, the worship was so powerful today. Do you know what God is saying? Continue to worship, continue to worship me beyond that feeling, because there is a good chance that feeling might be based on nostalgia and not actually response to who God is. It may be responding to the, the pad tone on the keyboard and not necessarily to who God is. Not that these things are bad in and of themselves, but be careful that we do not... Um, over-spiritualize the experience of worship and forget that we are part of an earth that needs Christians. Your neighborhood needs you to worship God through good works. Your neighbor, your family, your friends, the person sitting next to you in the cubicle at the, at the office needs your worship in loving, sharing, and, and blessing their lives as a representative of the heavenly kingdom on earth. It, it goes right back to the Lord's Prayer, doesn't it? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think that sometimes in the modern church movement, we get so spiritually minded. We want to be with God in the glory of his presence, but we forget the needs and the demands of our fallen world. An early history of, uh, I'm sorry, an early heresy of the uh, early church was something called Gnosticism. Gnosticism uh, is from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And it, they believe there was a secret knowledge that you attained to and you got closer to God through knowledge and only certain people. It's kind of like this kind of, um, oh, what's the modern equivalent of it? It is um, kind of like Illuminati kind of stuff. There's another one. Oh, Mason, the, the Mason movement where there's like the secret kind of understanding of the world that you're given. Uh, Scientology is a very Gnostic religion in the modern world. So it is rooted in Platonic dualism. And the idea in Platonic dualism is that the physical doesn't matter because it's broken and it's deteriorating and there's a lot of sin and there's a lot of crime and there's a lot of baggage there. And the spiritual is the only thing that matters and that's the pure world. And so you have to jettison the physical and only enter into the ethereal and spiritual. And so therefore, everything that matters is really what you feel and experience in the mind and in the soul. And this is not biblical. We see right on the first page of the Bible, it is not biblical because God makes the world and he says it is good. And then he makes the world and gives it mankind to dominate and, and rule over the world. And he says it is very good. Now, sin has come and undermined that goodness, but we are working with Christ to renew all things and restore all things back to the original form. And we have been given that authority in Christ Jesus to rule and subdue as we were originally intended to do so. But ultimately, biblical narrative continually reminds us of the goodness of creation, the goodness of the physical world. Your body is a good thing. Do not contaminate your body with bad things. And even the food laws of ancient Israel are speaking to that. And God is asking people 
in worship and in their approach to him, as you get closer to me in worship, your worship should be a benefit to people who do not yet know me. That is the beauty of this text. Stay grounded. Okay, moving on in the text. We will go to verse 25. If you make an altar of stones, you shall not build it of hewn stones. For if you wield your tool on it, you shall profane it. Now, this seems completely arbitrary. Why is God concerned about how they shape the uh, altar? And the reason why is because God knows that in the ancient world, people loved to show off in how they built their altars. Let me give you a picture here up on the screen. This is a uh, from my Logos Bible software. Ancient altars in the ancient world, you had several different kinds. You had um, movable covered, bronze covered wood, which is kind of what they had in the brazen altar in the temple. You have, oh, let's start at the top. You have solid bronze. This would be the very expensive kind of altar that if you had a lot of money and a lot of great tools and modern equipment, you could build. You had tear stone, which is probably what they made the Tower of Babel out of. Uh, it was not what you think. It was not this straight up tower like the Leaning Tower of Pisa. It was more like a ziggurat, more like a uh, ancient pyramid in Israel, in Egypt, and it had steps going up to it. In fact, if you go to Guatemala, if you go to Mexico and the Central American areas, you will see ziggurats still to this day of temples that the Mayans had built, and they had look very much like pro what probably the Tower of Babel looked like. Then there's, uh, again, back to movable bronze covered wood, unworked stones, uh, worked stone with horns, a rectangular mount, mound, and then any stone. What is God doing? He is telling people, look, keep it simple. Keep worship simple. It does not have to be a show. That is what focused, that, that, that is what he's saying here in verse 25. I believe he's saying, stay focused on God. It is not about what you bring to the table. It is not about how beautifully the instrumentality is. And while we should excel in all things that we do for God, for his glory. Ultimately, it is for his glory and not our own. Focus worship is worship that is mindful of God and not the worship itself. I say this to our worship leaders, be mindful not to worship worship. I, I kind of referenced this already. Oh, that song was so beautiful. Oh, the worship is so amazing. Are we worshiping God or are we worshiping the experience? And is a subconscious line that we can cross without even realizing it. But what God is saying here is your tools are not to, um, they are not the tool through which you will approach me. Worship is not a performance. Worship is not about what you bring to the table. Worship is not about separation based on class. So if you have fancy tools, you can build a bronze altar. And if you have somewhat fancy tools, you can build a, bro, uh, you know, a stone altar. And if you don't have any tools at all, you can just put it on a rock. And so now you have this kind of this division of the people based on what people had. And you have a caste system as in the Hindu religion. This is what God is stipulating against. They are to worship him together. Uh, moving on, the last part, point that we're looking at with laws approaching, uh, about approaching God in Exodus 20, verse 26. And you shall not go up by steps to my altar that your nakedness be not exposed on it. And I think fundamentally, and this is going to sound interesting, and I'm going to have to explain a couple things here. Number one, um, no steps. Now, why is that important? Because if you go back to the, Babel, the, the, the Tower of Babel, they had steps leading up to God in the, in the ancient ziggurat. And when did the Tower of Babel get built? 
It got built on the heels of the Great Flood. Well, what does what happens in the flood? The flood waters come and drown everyone living on the earth. So what was inherent behind the building of the Tower of Babel, but a desire for mankind to elevate themselves above the judgmental powers of God, to make a name for themselves, that's in the text, and number two, to avoid the next flood, which God had already promised he wouldn't send. But they don't listen to God, so they think, okay, we're going to make a name for ourselves, and we're going to avoid any kind of judgment for making a name for ourselves. And so what God says to ancient Israel is, you're going to stay on the ground, you're going to stay level. There's not going to be steps going to come to me as you are on the level. I am coming to meet with you where you are. It's a beautiful picture of how God wants to respond to us. We do not have to climb up the stairs, up, up the ladder to get to God. He comes down to us. The famous passage from Genesis where Jacob sees a ladder in a dream. And the Bible says that he saw the angels of God going up and down the ladder. But then he saw the Lord next to him. The Lord comes down the ladder to meet with Jacob. Jesus comes down out of heaven to meet with us. We do not have to climb up to God. We, we are brought close to God through his righteousness. And, and then he talks about this, that your nakedness be not exposed. And some people might get expo- uh, confused there. In ancient Canaanite religions, they would mix sex and worship constantly. Sex and religiosity went together hand in hand. Interesting thing happening in the mainline denominations of our, of our world right now is where you have sexual morality coming into the church, and now you have gay day in the Episcopal church, you have transgender day in, a, in the Episcopal church, uh, in the Anglican church. You have all these kind of, you know, sexually immoral practices coming into the church and trying to co-opt the worship experience of God's people. These are ancient practices. This is nothing new. And it is exactly what God speaks about here in Exodus chapter 20, verse 26. You're going to be pure. You're going to be righteous. You're not going to declothe. Because what happens in the Garden of Eden? They realize they're naked. They need clothes. God comes. He takes away their fig trees and their fig leaves. And he puts a garment of a lamb skin or a, a, an animal skin around them to clothe them and to make them right with himself. So what are we saying here in conclusion? Number four. Very simple. Stay clothed. Stay clothed. Now, how, as Christians, do we stay clothed? And I'm not talking about our physical clothing. Of course, we should stay clothed physically. <laughs> Don't show up to church naked, no. But what, what are we talking about spiritually? We're talking about the nakedness of our sin, our shame. Sin has shamed us and brought a spiritual nakedness to us. This is why people avoid church when they feel unworthy. This is why they don't want to come to church because they fear that God will judge them. There is a nakedness. There is a shame. There is a feeling of inadequacy and rightly so because we are inadequate before God. Well, when we understand that God has come down to us, that we can come to him on on the level through Jesus Christ, we are clothed in his righteousness. And we don't even have to go to the New Testament to find this. It's in the Old Testament. Prophesied through the prophet Isaiah 61 says this. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ and his righteousness covers us and, and makes us acceptable to God. That's who we are. Now, it does not end with God's clothing of us. We also must be clothed as we approach worship, which is what Paul stipulates to the Colossians in chapter 3, verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, 
kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You worship God through clothing yourself in the character of Christ. Because worship is not about the music. And it's not about the Sunday morning experience. As important as those things are, and make no mistake, they're important. There is worship in the Torah through music. There is worship under the Davidic kingdom uh, as David appoints the skilled, talented musicians to play and lead the people in worship. In fact, he had worship happening 24 hours a day in the temple at one point. Okay, worship and music absolutely go hand in hand. But beyond the music, beyond the experience, beyond the emotive experience of singing and song, there must be activity in the life of the worshiper that reflects the character and the nature of God to the world. And that is accomplished through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That removes the fear that brings us near and then sends us to the world so that they can hear that Christ is good. That's the episode. That's what Torah teaches us about worship. I hope and pray it has helped you and blessed you. And thanks for being here tonight. If you haven't heard, we've got a membership plan with Tim Hatch Live. Those are the membership quadrants, the $10 basic plan, the standard and the premium. You become a Patreon. You get insider access to a private members chat on Discord. You get behind the scenes footage of us putting this content together and you get extra bonus content of the deep end on Tuesday nights. By the way, if you support us, we support 20% of everything that comes in goes out 10% to Project Rescue, rescuing uh, sex trafficking slaves across the world and the American Bible Society getting the Bible into the hands of people around the world. You can also help the channel by liking and sharing and subscribing. And I will be back uh, onto the channel, unfortunately, not until Thursday of next week. So there is no deep end, no deep dive next week, but there is the 10 questions with Tim. So make sure that you're getting your questions in because that is going to happen next Thursday. 10 questions with Tim. I look forward to seeing you there. And guys, God bless you. Enter into a atmosphere of worship right where you are. Take time to thank God for who he is and praise his holy name. God bless you. Mm -hmm.